If you've not already turned in your Bibles, I invite you to do so to Romans chapter 2 as we continue now in chapter 2 looking at this individual or individuals that we've entitled the sinful moral. This is last week and this week we will continue on. There's 16 verses. We'll not cover all of them uh, today. We'll look at verses 5 through 11. But as we prepare ourselves to hear God's word, let us stand and honor God's word as it is read. Romans chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that thing which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good Seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. May we be blessed as we study his word together. You may be seated. I was having a conversation with my mother this week, so now she's trembling because I mentioned her in my sermon. And in this conversation, we spoke about the first verses that spoke to our hearts when we first came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to divulge the verses that she shared because she's going to share them with the ladies on Wednesday. And so if you're one of the men and you want to know, you'll have to ask her later after Wednesday, and maybe she'll let you know. I'm not sure. But it did bring to mind that passage that so captivated my mind when I was first called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ. And I hope you're not disappointed with the verse that I'm about to share. The Lord did not use some obscure passage for me. Uh, The one that I have is one that you've probably heard many times over, I would assume. He enlightened your own soul with it. The first verse I remember keying in on and memorizing was Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7. You know them, right? It says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Now, many people stop there. I like verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. As I read those verses, they are both comforting verses in that 
they give us God's promise, but they're also challenging verses. I don't know if you caught this, but there are, if I did my math correctly, six commands in those three verses. We note that what they are, we're to trust in the Lord, we're not to lean on our own understanding, we're to acknowledge him, we're not to be wise in our own eyes, we're to fear the Lord, and we're to turn away from evil. That sounds like a lifetime of activity to me. One of the reasons I mention this passage as we continue our study in, in Romans 2 is that these verses here are the antithesis, the opposite. They are diametrically opposed to the kind of person Paul is referring to in Romans 2. The Proverbs 3 person is not the Romans 2 person. The Proverbs 3 person looks to the Lord for everything. He's not going to depend upon his own understanding. He's not going to look to his own reasonings. He will be suspicious of looking uh, to himself or even others by means of coming up with some self-generated code of conduct. He looks at his own wisdom, the Proverbs 3 man does, as suspect, realizing that in the end, all he has and the only one he can look to is the Lord himself. He can fear the Lord, respect the Lord, be in awe of the Lord alone. And this alone, according to Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, is what will enable a person to rightly turn away from evil. And why would you want to turn away from evil? Because if you don't, you are inviting the wrath of God, which has been the subject of Paul in Romans chapters 1 and 2. The Romans 2, 1 through 16 man has an inflated view of himself. He sees no need to trust in the Lord with all his heart, but would rather lean on his own understanding. His own perception of what makes him a good person in the eyes of God are self-generated. This is the person who fails then to acknowledge God. This is the man who is puffed up with the wisdom that he himself has created by which he lives his life. There's little fear, therefore, in this man's eyes of the Lord, and as a result, whether he knows it or not, he does not and cannot avoid evil. Let me remind you that, again, Romans 1, 18 through chapter 2, verse 29, Paul is addressing with his readers three groups of people who would somehow identify themselves as being outside the will of God, all that deserve the wrath of God. By their lifestyle, they do not rightly acknowledge God, even though they know God exists. As a result, Paul indicates that these three lifestyles invite God's wrath. You will be under God's wrath if any one of these three groups of people you identify with. In Romans 1, 18-32, we have seen depraved humanity, those whose lives are best summarized as being inherently irreligious and immoral. These are those who are inherently irreligious and immoral. Uh, these are those that while they know in their hearts that such depravity that they participate in deserves the condemnation of God, they would rather celebrate that sin. They would rather encourage others to participate in that sin. The, the final group of people Paul will address is at the end of Romans 2, and we will call them the deluded religionists. These will be those that don't look to Christ for salvation, but they look on their participation in their religion and their religious affiliations to save them. But we're presently looking at the second group of people who we have identified as the deceived 
moralist, the deceived moralist. These are those who do not want to celebrate sin. They'll agree with Paul when he says, we know that those who practice those things back in Romans 1, they deserve God's judgment. They look down their proverbial noses at those who would so blatantly sin in those manners. But they seek to live by their own self-made moral conduct, and yet they regard themselves then as better than others because they do not sin to the same degree. They do not sin as blatantly or as outwardly as depraved humanity, and therefore they believe God must look upon them and smile that they comparatively are better than those others. Beloved, those described here in Romans 2, 1 through 16, live by the motto of comparative righteousness. And the, what is comparative righteousness? It's when you look at somebody else in order to say, so long as I'm better than that person, I am okay. And guess what? You can always find somebody that's worse than you. Can I tell you this on the flip side? You'll always find one that's better than you. Now, most of us would say we're going to find more than one that's better than us, and that's probably true too, but there's only one with a capital O that you ought to be comparing yourself with, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But these don't want to do that. Paul is about to set out to burst their bubble, to destroy their notion that anyone could ever say they're okay with God by the way they live if they live apart from the standard that God has set in his word. If they think that they will merit anything from God based on their conduct compared to others, that God would somehow give them eternal life rather than eternal condemnation, well, they are going to have a very uh, rude awakening. Such a notion is simply works righteousness. It's trying to earn God's favor. And let me remind you, there's nothing you can do to earn, it, earn God's favor. It's not by you being here today that God says, oh, you're okay. You're only okay if you're in Christ. If you have confessed the blood of Christ has covered you for your sins. These folks are those who fail to remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is a failing to learn the truth of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. My boast and our boast here today, I pray, would be in no one else but Jesus Christ. It's not boasting in a pastor. It's not boasting in the leadership of a church. It's not even boasting in a congregation that's striving to live for Christ. Our boast is in Christ and Christ alone. These are those who fail to understand the truth of 2 Timothy 1.9 where it is said that God, it is God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, that is not according to our self-generated, self-imposed moral code of conduct. How has he saved us? But according to his own purpose and grace which was granted, which was given to you in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In Romans 2, 1 through 16, we find the sinful, deceived moralist who regards himself as having escaped the wrath of God, not because he's received the grace of God, but by his own self-righteous efforts. This is what Paul is now systematically unraveling in our text. 
And last week we took note of three points that Paul uses to prove this point. And the first one was man's unrighteous judgment in verse 1. First, Paul charges the self-righteous, judgmental person with having no excuse, no defense. You see, there no apology for the fact that regardless of what he may think or what he may feel, he and everyone is guilty of sin and often the same sins that he condemns in others. We saw next God's righteous judgment in verses 2 and 3. Paul calls his readers, and he actually says, you're going to agree with this, that we know that those who practice those evil things in Romans 1, they deserve the wrath of God. And all of these readers would have said, yes, that's, that's right. And yet, Paul's going to say, you have participated in those sins to one degree or another. And then we looked at the third point, God's patience in judgment, verse 4. Paul calls attention to the fact that God in rich, is rich in kindness and tolerance and patience, his long-fusedness, desiring that all would come to the knowledge of the truth, that they would all know that they are sinners, that they would all repent, that they would all change their minds about who Christ Jesus is and turn to him to be saved and saved alone. Well, that's where we were. So now this morning we continue with this outline and we look at what will be our fourth point, man's provocation for judgment. Do you know that we provoke God? Uh, let me just remind you that Eve, everyone in this room provokes God. Even you who are redeemed, those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are times we still yet provoke God. Well, man has that bent to provoke God. Look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In the first four verses, Paul has been intentional. Remember, he shifted his pronouns from chapter 1 saying they and them to now in here in chapter 2 to saying you. He's making this personal. There are people in the pews, as it were, that are sitting there thinking, I'm okay because I go to church. I'm okay because I'm better than the person across the aisle. I'm okay because I'm not, you know, uh, doing all of these sinful things. And I don't really need to live for Christ. I don't really need to do much more. People see that I'm a basically good person. And Paul is now going to lay waste to that. He's charging them, and you notice this two times already, of being guilty of practicing the same things as the prayed humanity, first in verse 1, then in verse 3, and then asking them that since this is true, or telling them since this is true, that they honestly believe that they would escape the wrath of God. You cannot escape the wrath of God except by the Son of God. You cannot escape the judgment of God except the one, by the one who has taken that judgment upon himself for you. In verse 4, Paul challenges them further uh, 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 with, with having taken sin lightly, that they have devalued the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God, not realizing God's full judgment has not yet fallen on them. And so because of that, they say, well, since we're not seeing the judgment of God on ourselves, God must be okay with me. Well, Paul makes it clear that some of those reading or hearing this letter, sitting in that congregation at Rome, were simply not believers, as maybe some that are sitting in this room or listening to us online. That they had yet to trust in Christ. 
And the words in verse 5 are heavy and somber, and they do not indicate that Paul is speaking to believers in this moment. Because he says in verse 5, because of your stubbornness, and catch this word, because can believers be stubborn? Yeah. But then he says, unrepentant heart. He's not describing believers here. He's describing those who may think they're believers that have justified their standing with God by not, not by coming to Christ. There's nothing in these words that imply genuine faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, there's nothing in chapters 1, 2, or 3 that indicate that there's anything that saves, that, that any one of these people are saved until we come to the end of chapter 3 when he begins to talk about faith in Jesus Christ. Sure, may, people may go to church. There are people who serve the church. But do you know that there are people who serve the church? They could serve in a Sunday school. They could serve on the deacon board. They could serve as an elder. And yet their hearts are far from Christ. It is as if Paul is saying, those of you who think of your own sin but lightly, while condemning others for their sins, you yourselves are provoking the very wrath of God. Paul says as he begins this in verse 5, but because, meaning in accordance with, I would take it to mean this way, in proportion to the practice of your own sin, how do you believe you will escape the judgment of God? Beloved, there's nothing random or arbitrary with God's judgment against sin. He doesn't look at the sins of two people and say, well, this one looks a little nicer than that one. Although they did the same sin, this better looking one, I'm going to let him go, and I'm going to really squash this one. God judges all sin the same. God's judgment against all and any sin is always right, always just. And now consider, me, consider with me the twofold progression of Paul's thought here as he moves on in this verse. And the first is the insensitive response, the insensitive response of unsaved people sitting in the pews. Paul first describes them as being engaged in stubbornness and professing an unrepentant heart. And the word stubbornness speaks of that which is hard or callous. Any of you ever get a hard callous? That's, that's the idea here. The Greek word that Paul uses is from the word we get the medical term scolorosis, which means what? A hardening of something. And so the alcoholic develops a sclerosis of the liver, the hardening of the liver. And that impedes the liver's ability to function as it's supposed to. There is sclerosis of the arteries, the hardening of the arteries, which could impede and can even stop the flow of blood to one's heart. Such medical conditions, aren't they an apt picture of the spiritual condition of the heart of the self-righteous? They have become so calloused and hard. They become unresponsive. A callous makes you insensitive. And these spiritually calloused people are insensitive to what? The kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God. And what is God doing? He's calling them not to condemn them. He's calling them to repentance. Change your mind about Christ. That's, that's the call of God. Not only are they trapped, though, in their own stubbornness, but they also have, Paul says, what? An unrepentant heart. God's patience intended to lead them to repentance, yet they, see no, they sense no need to repent. They are, to try to borrow some terms, impenitent, unremorseful, unapologetic. They have unchanging hearts. 
This is the heart that says to itself, other people do need to repent. Other people need to have their attitudes changed. But I'm fine just the way I am. Beloved, that's a dreadful condition to find yourself in. To be so callous to think that sin hasn't affected you, that sin doesn't bring upon you God's judgment. To be in a congregation week after week and to remain unmoved and unchanged, to remain unmotivated to see yourself as a sinner who must be changed by the Savior is a dreadful condition. Beloved, sin makes the heart insensitive. The more you are sinning, even if you are a believer, the more you find yourself sinning, the more insensitive you will find yourself towards the things of God. You will be unable to feel your true need, and if you are not a believer, you will be unwilling to look to God and our Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Such insensitivity, though, leads to the very next issue, which I've called the intense result. So if you're going to be stubborn, and we've all known stubborn people, right? I'm not one of them. You laugh. There's people more stubborn than me, so I'm okay. okay. Well, such insensitivity leads to something devastating, an intense result. Again, these words ought to horrify anyone. I We've been talking as we've been in Romans 1, you know, some of the most uh, terrible things you would ever hear said. Uh, depart from me. For I never knew you. Horrifying words to hear. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We've, we've spoken about some of these things. Well, these are equally horrifying words. Paul says, if you are stubborn and you remain unrepentant, what are you doing? You are storing up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The verb here is storing up. You are storing up. It's in the present tense. You're doing this now. You continue to do it. You're always doing it. You're presently, and this word storing up can mean treasuring up. The word actually has the idea of saving up something. Positively, we could liken it to having a savings account. Anybody have a savings account? You have some money that you, you put away, you squirrel away. Maybe it's for retirement. Maybe it's to make some vacation. Whatever it is, you're storing up this, this money. You're making this special purpose. But what Paul speaks of is not positive at all. It is a saving up of what? You're contributing to your account the wrath of God. In that day when God's righteous judgment and wrath are revealed, you will be inundated. You will have an account so full, it will overwhelm you. Let me illustrate it to you this way. In 1959, the Malpasat Dam on the Rayran River in the French Riviera collapsed. And it killed 432 pe 423 people. Prior to the collapse, it was said that there were signs of an imminent disaster that began in November of that year with a, quote, trickle of water being observed high on the right side, unquote. And then cracks were beginning to be noticed later in the month in the concrete apron at the front of the dam. At 12 p.m. on December 2nd, 1959, there was some heavy rainfall, and the reservoir had excess water uh, filling up the dam. It, the dam had reached its maximum. 
One of the engineers on the staff at that day asked for permission to release the excess water, but he was denied to do so at noon, but was told he could begin to do it at 6 p.m. after the rain had come for those six hours. By then, the amount of water was so high that after three hours of releasing water, the water level only dropped one inch. At 9.13 p.m., the entire dam wall collapsed with only a few, few blocks of remaining on the right bank. The breach, it said, created a massive wall of water some 130 feet high. That's the equivalent of a 10-story building. Moving downstream at 45 miles an hour with large chunks of concrete walls, some weighing as much as 1.2 million pounds. I had to look this up. That's the equivalent of four blue whales. The blue whale is the largest creature on the earth. Take four of those, and you had concrete blocks moving downstream that big. And the result is that two small villages, Maspot and Bozon, were destroyed. As I said, the death toll was 423 people, 135 of which were children under the age of 15. 15 were between the ages of 15 and 21. There were 134 men, 112 women, 27 individuals who were actually never identified. In addition, there were some 80 children that were orphaned. Another 83 were injured. Other damages included 150 buildings destroyed, 800 buildings damaged, and over 3,300 acres devastated. In today's dollars, it was said to have been over a $100 million disaster. However bad that breach was, what Paul pictures in our text is an infinitely worse disaster. Romans 2.5 tells us that there are people, many of whom may be sitting in the church, who are gradually... Moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year after year, what are they doing? They're gathering up for themselves. They're storing up for themselves. What are they storing up? Nothing but the judgment of God. And that that judgment will one day break loose, and it will be something that they cannot recover from. It will ruin them eternally. The result of the dam of God's wrath breaking out upon you is of so much greater consequence and of such more eternal damage to the soul that Paul is saying, do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God? Paul tells us there will be a day when this takes place. The revelation the exposure, the bursting forth of the wrath of God and judgment. Our text teaches us that non-Christians have a spiritual savings account with God, whereby day by day, as they sin, they're making these deposits, accumulating what? What is the interest? More and more wrath for the day of wrath when Christ returns. It is this day of wrath to which every moralist, every religionist, every irreligious and immoral person must be rescued. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us the one who can rescue us. It is Jesus, Paul identifies, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It is not what your hands have done. It is not what you have accomplished. It's not because your granddaddy was a preacher. It's not because you were born in America. It's not because 
Well, I've done more good things than bad things. Your only hope of escaping the judgment of God is faith in Jesus Christ. It's the Apostle John who saw the likeness of this breach unfolding, the unfolding of God's wrath, as we read in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. There's, here's a, a bigger picture of it. John wrote, I looked and I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon was like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe fruit when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places." Then the kings of the earth and the great men of the, com of the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Answer the question, not one, except if you're in Christ. Beloved, the self-righteous moralist who thinks that he or she will escape the judgment of God will uh, and receive nothing from him actually get a lot more than they bargained for. They get the hugest of payouts on the day of judgment. And what is that payout? The payout is the punishment that God pours out for their sins against him. It is not just wrath for a moment. It is eternal wrath in hell in which he will release upon the ungodly. For surely he has a record of every single day of the lives of the moralist, every single day of the life of the irreligious, every single day of the life of the religionist, and how they've lived their life before him with unrepentant hearts and have refused to come to Jesus Christ for, for the forgiveness of their sins. And what is the result? We speak of some of these verses that we know, and we don't think about how devastating they really are, because the ruin that awaits those who are unrepentant is found later in Romans 6, 23, as well as the remedy. Do you see the, the two of these things here in these familiar words? For the wages of sin is death. But what is death? Death, beloved, is eternal ruin. Death is eternal destruction. Death is an eternally enduring of the wrath of God your sins deserve. This is the most ruinous condition that anyone can find themselves in. And if you're thinking, I'm okay, apart from Christ, the wages will be counted for you. You are storing them up. The wages of sin is death. That's the ruin. What's the remedy? But, in contrast, there's something freely offered. The free gift of God is eternal life. What's eternal life? What's the opposite of ruin? It's the opposite of destruction. It is the remedy. It is the relief. It is the rejoicing that you have been redeemed by nothing but the blood of the Lamb. Beloved, do not, get, uh, do not be among those who provoke God's wrath. If you are storing it up for yourself until the day of wrath, you will 
you will, you're in for this rude awakening. What is the call? And we're actually getting ahead of ourselves when I say all of this, because right now Paul's just kind of throwing it all out there, and he's not giving you the remedy. I just have to, I don't want to send you all home, you know, in tears. What do we do? We must repent. We must recognize our need for Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and to save us from the wrath to come. And we must not delay if you're sitting here thinking, I've been okay thus far. There will be a day when you're not okay. And I pray, and I know there are people in this room that pray, you will come to Christ completely, fully, not saying, well, I sort of trust in the Lord, but you will say, I trust in the Lord with all my heart. There's a difference. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be rescued from your sinful state. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be delivered from the wrath of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be a redeemed and beloved child of God and will be received into his blissful presence. Well, this brings us to our fifth point, God's impartiality in judgment, verses 6 through 11. God's impartiality in judgment. Look at verse 6. He says, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Here Paul continues to speak about the day of judgment that comes upon the deceived moralist. He has mentioned this in verses 2, 3, and 5, and we'll do so again in verse 16, which we'll look at next week. What we find in these verses are a reiteration of what Scripture teaches us in many places that ultimately, if you want everything nice and simple, there's only two kinds of people in this world. Believers and unbelievers. There are are only those two kinds of people. And what Paul teaches here is that whatever group you're in will be manifested in the way in which you live your life. Now, we need to be incredibly clear with all of this that Paul is not dealing with the subject of justification here. How are we made righteous? That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about justification. He's talking about judgment. And if we miss this, we'll become confused because we might come to think that Paul is somehow teaching salvation by works, which is he is not something that he will refute later on, later in this book, and the entire Bible reveals that we're not saved by works. But Scripture teaches us that good works are to be evident and present in the life of a believer. But that good works are the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. You are saved because the root of Christ has now in you, and that produces fruit. Abide in me, Jesus said in John 15, and you will do what? You will bear much fruit. If you are not bearing fruit, it means you're not connected to me. So we're constantly striving to abide with Christ. Paul speaks of these two kinds of believer or people, believers and unbelievers. We can call them, Jesus called them what? Sheep and goats. Both groups of people give evidence to the spiritual state by how they conduct their lives here on this earth, either as truly born-again Christians who have been given new hearts, who walk in the new ways before God, who are constantly trying to point people to Christ because they're constantly trying to point themselves to Christ. Or we come as worldlings, false professors of faith, 
showing that we have no true fruit of genuine salvation. In these verses, we find that on the final day, our lives will either validate our salvation or our lives will validate our damnation. If we are truly converted, we will live a life of gospel obedience to the things of Christ. Isn't that what he said we're supposed to be doing? Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to what? Obey all that I've commanded. I think about that as we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. So many ways in which we've all failed to obey the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the true Christian says, I don't want that anymore. The true Christian says, forgive me, Lord, where I have failed to obey you. But there are those who are like, okay, well, I messed up, whatever. I'll just keep going on. We find this life of obedience to the things of Christ in verse 7. The judgment will be a judgment according to the evidence. And let me remind you that God never judges on the basis of one's religious profession. He never judges on one's religious relationships. He never judges us on religious heritage. But among other standards, God judges us, judges us on the basis of what our lives have produced because we've been in Christ. This is not to suggest that believers contribute anything to our salvation. We know that the sole basis of our salvation is acceptance, uh, and our acceptance with God is on the blood of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Christ. It's not by our lives of obedience to the things of God. But on the day of judgment, it is only the life and death of Jesus which will commend us to God. Salvation is not based on works, but upon the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Thus, our present-day justification by faith alone, when you know I'm saved, not because of what I've done, when you stand before the throne in the final day, you will be saved by the same justification. Not what I've done, but what Christ has done for me. However, the point of this passage is to teach us that those who have been truly saved through faith alone, on the grounds of Christ alone, beloved, they will show this fact by living a transformed life in the here and now. These are people who you can tell God is doing a work in their lives. By God's grace and by the aid of the Holy Spirit, genuine believers strive to live differently than others in the world because, well, they are different. If you think you can live like the world and be a Christian, you've not understood what it means to be a Christian. In very familiar a language, 2 Corinthians 5.17, what do we read? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, brand spanking new. He's completely different. He's the new and improved. Put all the signs and the flashing lights. It should be drawing attention. This one is different. This one is born again. This one is, uh, I'm going to borrow from Keith Green, bananas for Jesus. If you don't know about Keith Green, he said that one time. It obviously stuck with me. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things, the old thinking, the old behaviors, the old lifestyle. I don't want that anymore. I don't want to bring that as an adjective into my present day living for Christ. I'm not going to be this particular kind of Christian. We can say a gay Christian. Wait, that doesn't work because the Bible condemns homosexuality. I'm not going to be a murderous Christian. I'm not going to be a lying Christian. I'm not going to be a deceitful Christian. I'm going to be the very best Christian I can be by the grace of God because he dwells in me. And 
he can do whatever he wants so long as I get myself out of the way. In verse 6, which is a quote of Psalm 62.11, we learn that in the day of judgment, God will render. Interesting term. It means to repay. It means to give back or to give in recompense. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to repay each and every person. There will not be one person who's excluded from getting what they deserve. doesn't matter if they're a Jew or a Greek. And it will be, he says, according to their deeds, according to the way that he or she has lived out the, the reality or the non-reality of their salvation. In other words, salvation is not simply about what someone says about himself. Rather, it is according to what is true about himself as revealed in how he lives. God will judge all impartial with uh, impartiality according to what everyone has done. Now, without getting too complex, and I know I have the tendency to do that, Paul is doing something here in the Greek text that we miss in our English translations. He's using a chiastic structure. The letter chi is an X, and it has this, you can see kind of the side of what would be an X. And this is a technique that the Hebrews used a lot in order to help people understand the points of an argument, even memorize the points of an argument. And so Paul has this, and I've really simplified it here, but if you follow the idea of Romans 2, 5 through 11, he says in verse 5, those who do not repent are storing up for themselves wrath. And then the first key point, God will judge everyone impartially. Point B, those who do good will obtain eternal life. Point C, those who do evil suffer wrath. And then he's going to begin to come back out. In verse 9, those who do evil will suffer wrath. He comes back out. Those who do good will obtain glory, which matches our B1 up there. And then he'll end in verse 11 by saying what? God will judge all impartially. So let's take a look at exactly what this means. Beginning in verse 7, we see the first of Paul's arguments for those who do good, whose faith is in Christ, and have revealed a change to pursue the will of God. Here's the lives of, un of repentant hearts. Here are the lives of repentant hearts. This needs to be the question you ask yourself. Does this describe me? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they get what? Eternal life. Remember that in verse 7, Paul is describing the deeds, of, uh, the deeds with the works of a true Christian. The one who has been saved. He hasn't identified what that all looks like yet in this letter, but we're moving ahead. But this is the one who's been saved by grace alone through faith alone. We learn that the true believer here receives eternal life, that state of unending, joyful communion with God through Jesus Christ. And how does he do it? He's been granted something, a persevering spirit, a persevering spirit, his patience, continuance in pursuing good, a good that is the fruit of genuine salvation, as well as that which is to which all believers are called to pursue. This is not a new idea. It's interesting that in Psalm 37, 27, there's so many verses we could look at, but Psalm 37, 27, listen to what the psalmist writes. He says, depart from evil and do good so that you will abide forever. What is that simply teaching us? 
if you find evil in your hearts and that's what you're always doing to some degree or another, you're not going to abide forever in holiness or in the presence of God. So depart from evil and do what? Do good. Do the good that God has given you to do. And you know what ought to be the response to a verse like that? So often this is my response. Depart from evil. Lord, that's hard. It's everywhere. It's, it's crouching at my door, and its desire is for me. I can't hardly wake up my eyes in the morning, and evil's not already present. And you're telling me to depart from evil. That's, that's, I need your help, God. Well, he says, depart from evil and do good. Do good? I'll try, but I know my heart. And if you're not a believer, it's even worse, right? But the idea that we see in our sinful selves, this, this pull for evil to be drawn to evil, and this inability to do good, that's human depravity. And unless the Lord grants us his spirit, unless the Lord fills us with his spirit and empowers us to do the good, we won't do the good. And so do you see the necessity of the prayer that we must persevere? God, if I am to do good this day, it is not because of me, but because of you. That even after I've done everything you've asked me to do, I will still have to proclaim, as Luke says in his gospel, I am but an unworthy slave. An unworthy slave. In addition to doing good, as Paul says, persevere in doing good, labor intensely for doing good. He says, genuine believers seek for glory. Well, what is he speaking of? I believe we could look at this two ways. One is it's the glory of God on this earth that we really desire to see that uh, manifested, but it's also the glory that will come to us when we are forever in his presence. We see the glory of God. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. We, we long for the glory of God. But we will be amazed, will we not, when we uh, behold him face to face, our Savior on the throne, and we see the full glory of God, it will be unlike anything you have ever seen before. Are you seeking it? Is your great desire to see the glory of God manifest now in your life and when you come to, to glory? Everything we do is to be about the glory of God. You brush your teeth, it should be to the glory of God. You go exercise to the glory of God. You talk to your spouse to the glory of God. You raise your children to the glory of God. You do your work to the glory of God. Indeed, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Can I say it simply this way? Glorifying God in your life is making God look good by the way you live. And so I ask you this morning, does your life make God look good. Why would we want that? Well, one, it should be our desire and delight. And two, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify God. You're trying to point them to it. Not only are believers to pursue glory, it says, they are also to pursue honor, which is an interesting idea here. The idea is honor from God, when he will say to all of those who persevere by the, by the power of the Spirit, they've lived their lives to the best of their ability on this side of glory, by the power of the Spirit to bring glory to God, God will say to them, well done, my good and faithful slave. Do you pursue that? 
that you want to, to wake up whatever day God calls you into glory, whether it's because he's taken us up uh, at the end of the times or if it's because we have closed our eyes in death to open our eyes to behold him, that the words you want to hear are not depart from me, for I never knew you, but well done, my good and faithful slave. Enter into your father's rest, your master's rest. Is that what you are pursuing? Honor from God for a life well lived by the power of the Holy Spirit? That's what marks a genuine believer. And the final characteristic of true believers that they are to pursue is immortality. This seems like a strange one. How do I pursue immortality? Beloved, it's a longing for that moment when we will put off this perishable body and it will be clothed with imperishable it is a recognition that everything is, that's wrong with my body, that I can't see without contacts, that I probably can't even get a new pair anymore because they're like, your eyes are too bad, and I have to wear all sorts of weird glasses and all that. You know, you ever think in the morning when you have to pick up your glasses? I long for immortality. I long when this body that has been corrupted by sin will no longer be corrupted by sin. When there's no longer sickness and disease, when there's no longer ailments, I long for the day. And then I can't help but think of my favorite preacher, George Whitfield, who did say, with all of his ailments and struggles, I am immortal until my work is done. What he meant by that is I can do whatever God has called me to do on this earth and I'm not going to be taken out of this earth one second earlier than this time that God has chosen. So I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you have that mentality? For those who pursue such things, they indicate they've been transformed by faith in the person and work of Christ. Well, that's the lives of the repentant hearts. Let's look at the lives of of the unrepentant hearts, beginning in verse 8. In contrast, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth. In contrast to genuine godly believers in verse 7, verse 8 begins by revealing the lifestyle, the mentality, the worldview of those who will be revealed in the day of judgment. Remember how Paul likes lists? And so here we have a list of descriptions for how unbelievers, in this case, the moralists, live their lives. First, he says that they are what? They're selfishly ambitious. What does that mean? Interesting, the Greek idea here means that they are they're over the top in selfishness. They are extremely selfish. They are self-seeking, self-serving. They care ultimately little for others. There's really a sense of of, a, of being a sociopath. Just, I don't really care about everybody else. Whatever you may think that they care, it's really just them manipulating you or the system to get what they want. And we are all pretty good at that. We all have a little tendency to being sociopaths. Second, Paul describes those as do not obey the truth. They continually refuse to submit themselves or to be persuaded by the truth. The truth about God, the truth about his word, the truth about Christ, the truth about the gospel that brings salvation. Do you really know yourself? Have you been persuaded by the truth that you are a sinner? Christ Jesus came into the world not to save the moralist, not to save the Pharisee, not to save the rich, 
Not to save the poor. He came to save sinners. Third, rather than obey the truth that leads to righteousness, Paul says they obey, again, this is in the present tense, they habitually, they continually follow unrighteousness, that which is wrong, that which is not right in the eyes of God. He's the standard. I can't tell you how many times people say, well, nobody else cares. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what anybody else thinks. My concern is what does God, what does God think? What is God's standard in all of this? Well, that leads to the outcome for unrepentant hearts. We're just kind of following that pattern. Out The uh, outcome, as a result of all of this, there's a number of punishments. First, Paul says, they will receive the full force of God's wrath and indignation. That, I just find that fascinating. Paul's so uptight at this moment. He's been talking about do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And he's like, I'm tired of saying wrath and judgment only. So let me, let me add a new word. You will be under, this is the, the result, this is the outcome. You will receive God's wrath, his orge, and his indignation, his thumos. We would say his fierce or intense or his fervent burning anger against your sin. This is what awaits you if you're apart from Christ. John the Apostle describes the same thing using the same words, orge and thumos, just like Paul in Revelation 19.15. He says, from his, that's the mouth of Christ, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may, slay, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath, the orge thumos of God the Almighty. Do you see what John is describing in the book of Revelation, which we all immediately think of what? The judgment of God. Here's the wrath of God coming down. These are the same terminology that Paul's using here against those who think that they're better than everybody else and they don't need Christ. The second punishment that Paul speaks of is the tribulation. He says a tribulation, which speaks of great affliction, or we would actually probably identify it as the greatest of affliction. The mother of all afflictions would be the idea. And then he adds this other punishment of distress, which speaks of intense anguish or, or extreme trouble. Beloved, the punishments come upon every soul, every person, who in contrast to doing good as a result of being saved by faith in Jesus Christ, pursues some form of evil. And you know, evil we think of as all being so overtly intense and the devil with his his horns and his tail and his pitchfork, evil can be so subtle in your life that no one else sees it. And you may even be deceived yourself. And the greatest evil is not acknowledging your need for Jesus Christ. This is the one who continually denies his need of God's salvation and pursues what is right in his own eyes. And here is, beloved, the impartiality of God. 
It does not matter if you're a Jew. It does not matter if you're of God's chosen race or if you're a Greek, a non-Jew. Anyone who relies upon themselves, anyone who has their own standard for right living, no matter how good it may be or how bad it may be, if it's not a faith in Christ, God says all of you will experience my wrath. That brings us to the outcome uh, for repentant hearts coming all the way out. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice that for those who God changes, for those who pursue God's good by faith in Christ, what do they seek? And he's just kind of reiterating this, right? They are seeking glory and honor. These are the ones seeking glory and honor and immortality. What do they receive? If you're seeking glory, honor, and immortality, what do you receive? You receive glory, being in the presence of him who's glorious. You receive this honor as being received as faithful sons and daughters of the Most High God, and you receive peace. What is peace? Paul's going to talk about this later on in Romans chapter 5. We, therefore, we have peace with God. What is peace? Peace is having an eternal well-being with God. You are perfectly right with God. And just as God is impartial to judge with his wrath all those who do evil in any shape, manner, or form, condemning all those who reject him and his son, Jesus Christ, God is just as impartial to receive all those who by faith in Christ pursue good, who are changed by Christ and thus live for Christ. Everyone who is saved, there's not going to be, well, man, you're kind of the low one on the totem pole. You remember being uh, chosen for kickball? And the worst thing could ever be is like the last person. Okay, we chose all ten people. The last one, oh, Ed, yeah, come on. You're like, but if you're the last one chosen in God's economy, he doesn't look on you like you're the last one I'd ever want. He says, you have had faith and you're on my team. I think God's not probably going to do it in that order. He'll just say, come on, right? Just come on, come on. There's no partiality with God. There's no favoritism with God. No respecting of persons with God. All who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. End of story. All who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will receive his wrath. So often in a human court of law, preferences are shown, are they not? They're shown to the good-looking. They're shown to the wealthy, to the influential. But God is impartial, verse 11 tells us. No consideration of race, place, or face is going to be in God's influence. Man may look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And either your heart is unredeemed and therefore sick and desperately wicked, deserving the wrath of God, or your heart has been transformed by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who, who died for your sins, died because of your unrighteousness, and out of his great love and his great compassion has imputed, has given to your account, he stored up for your account, not the wrath of God, but the righteousness of God that is yours by faith, so that you now might, by the working of the Holy Spirit in you, this should be your description, verse 7, I pursue good, 
I seek glory and honor and peace and immortality and eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you would become a true Christian, if you would be ready for the day of judgment, then you must prepare now to meet your God through Christ and Christ alone. How do you do this, you ask? You do this by turning from your sins and trusting in the work of Christ on the cross as your only hope and acceptance before the Almighty God. And if you're a believer here this morning, let us be thankful that it is the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God that actually led each and every one of us to repentance. You can look at your life and Maybe if you were saved early, it would be harder to see. But if you were saved later in life, you recognize, do you not, the kindness of God, the patience of God that has led you to repentance. Let us be thankful every day for the long suffering, the long fusedness of, God's, of God in grace that was displayed towards us that we might be saved. And let us begin thanking God even now as we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges that we find within it. We thank you that you do not desire us to be uninformed with regard to who you are, what you have done, who we are, what we have done, what you have provided for us so that we might have eternal life, that we might have even now the, the desire to know you and to love you and to serve you. We thank you for such precious things as these. And Father, as we celebrate what you've accomplished for us through the cross of Christ, I pray that you would bring to our remembrance what we have been redeemed from, what we've been saved from. And may that turn our hearts to great gladness and great thanksgiving for you have done an extraordinary thing for us that we could never imagine. But we thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And so now, Father, as we come to the table, may you be honored. May you be glorified. May this be part of our pursuit in doing good and seeking your glory, seeking honor, seeking immortality as we rest upon Christ and Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.